Hello, one and all. Welcome to the first of a new Squiggly podcast venture. Mm-hmm. Squiggly Film Club, where we're going to be taking a classic feature. Press play, and then we'll chat until the film's finished, basically. Uh, my name's Steve Henderson. And I'm Ben Mitchell. <laughs> but of course you knew already. Yeah. We're such staples of the animation podcast world, no doubt. Well, absolutely. And who better to talk over your favourite films, Ben? <laughs> hey. <laughs> who better to be that annoying person in the cinema, sat a couple of row backs, so you just go, do you know this, what happens here? Who better to be those people than us? I have brought snacks, by the oh. way, so you will be hearing close-up mastication sounds throughout this uh, this episode. So, uh, what film are you going to watch today then, Ben? In fact, probably a better idea, better idea to say why we're we doing this thing, really. As, as you can probably tell by our sort of rambly nature, we're trapped indoors. It's the latest craze, staying inside. <laughs> Who knew all those, uh, those socially introverted folks actually had uh, the edge on this particular scenario. Yeah, we're, we're indoors, we're isolated. It's working out okay so far. I think it's been, creatively speaking and artistically speaking, it's been bringing out some good things. People have been kind of coming together and there's this kind of sense of community in a way that there had been to an extent, but I think now by virtue of there being nothing else to do, people are really kind of, you know, lifting each other up and supporting each other. And um, yeah. we've been seeing people releasing uh, their work online, lots of short filmmakers. We were talking in the last episode of the regular Squiggly Animation podcast about festivals doing digital events. That's already started happening. Uh, it's been a very densely packed few weeks of um, societal change since uh, the last episode. And, you know, obviously, you got to be wary. you got to be on your toes and uh, be careful, but also be positive and uh, keep yourself entertained. And if you are, if you are of the creative persuasion, Maybe you could entertain some other people. And then there's us, where we'll, <laughs> we'll just be kind of, you know, talking and waffling the way we do. We're very on brand. Oh, yes. Was that remotely a, a why <laughs> explanation? We wanted to do, I guess, a, a, a podcast that was a quicker turnaround affair, something that was very kind of in and out. Uh, we've already betrayed that with the length and rambliness of this intro. But uh, in future... Because we'd like to, you know, do more of these. Um, uh, yeah, it'll be a kind of press play, watch the film, talk about the film, talk about the filmmaker, and then as soon as the film's done, that's the end of the episode. That sounds good to me. A mercifully short film, given our ridiculous ramblings uh, so far, Ben. Uh, what film are we watching today, mate? I figured we would maybe start off with "It's Such a Beautiful Day." Uh, for a couple of reasons. One, it, like you say, it's a shorter film. It's about an hour long. Um, so if this turns out to be a dreadful mistake, you know, we'll have only, you know, put an hour into it. <laughs> also, it has been released online for, I suspect, the period of, uh, uh, however, this lockdown situation lasts uh, for free. Ordinarily, it's three years. Uh, <laughs> three, ten. We'll see. <laughs> this usually, I think, goes for about, you know, the price of a cup of coffee, something like three pounds to rent or something to that extent. I forget exactly, but it's not a great deal of money if you wanted to get this on Vimeo on demand. Uh, the fact of the matter is Don Hertzfeld, the director, has uh, released it for free. Uh, if you type in the coupon code uh, when you find it on Vimeo and go to buy or rent, uh, type in the coupon code, I am stuck inside, all caps, uh, <laughs> you get the, the you get your rental. It, it, it shows up in your... Uh, Vimeo account. And uh, I think that's a very lovely gift to give people because if they haven't seen this film or if they want to see it again, it's, it is a very, very tremendous hour of animation. Yeah. And we'll get into, I guess, you know, the, all the virtues of it as it goes. Fantastic. And such a beautiful film, such a beautiful day. Uh, let's ruin it, shall we, Ben? Tremendous. So the best way to, <laughs> the best way to listen to this podcast uh, is to set up the film yourself, I would say. Uh, press play and watch along with us. But if you're listening without watching the film, I suppose that's fine as well. Uh, so if you're watching, we're watching it on Vimeo. Uh, are you ready to press play, Ben? I am indeed. Okay, my, my cursor okay. is hovering over the play button. Shall we count down? As is mine. Let's count down. Three, two... two. One, 
Play. Play. And here we go. So obviously, being a uh, quite an arty film, there's black at the beginning, which terrifies me to see whether or not it's working or not. <laughs> but it is. Uh, when was the first time you saw this film, Ben? So uh, the deal with this film is that it was originally made as three separate 20-odd-minute short films that each got their own respective festival runs. So I first saw this film by seeing the last of the three and I think encounters. So I saw the end <laughs> before I saw the rest of it. <laughs> but it actually, I mean, it works. They all work as their own films. Um, and because of the nature of the story, sort of, you know, going back and rewatching it, knowing how it ultimately ended, um, didn't ruin it as such. Um, it just kind of gave it, you know, a, I think the the watching the first films definitely gives more uh, dimensions to the last film. Yeah, um, there are like little extra layers and stuff that um, you can pick up on. But yeah, like I say, in its own right, uh, I thought the third film uh, was quite uh, quite a beautiful, poignant uh, musing on life and death, and sort of philosophical toward the end as well. Um, but yeah, it was it was sort of touching, and I remember it took me a little while to realize, oh, this isn't someone who's just doing a Don Hertzfeld style. This is Don Hertzfeld, because um, yeah. my knowledge of him as a filmmaker, um, you know, as the short filmmakers at that point, I think was you know the greatest hits, stuff like Rejected and Billy's Balloon, stuff that was more kind of broadly comedic, and I hadn't seen. Um, certain films that I think kind of set the stage for this one at that point. Um, there was a film he did, I think prior to this called not the end of oh, the meaning of life, I think. Um, and that was a very like atmospheric, uh, quite experimental also uh, a film for him. Hmm. I, my first, uh, Exposure, I suppose, uh, to Don Hertzfeld was uh, Bradford Animation Festival 2001, and it was the Spike and Mike uh, shorts. Mm -hmm. And I remember the program really clearly because it was amazing short film, Happy Tree Friends. Amazing short film, Happy Tree Friends. Amazing short film, (laughs) Happy Tree Friends. Now, uh, those that I'm sure there's a generation listening to us have never heard of Happy Tree Friends. Um, It was how would you describe it? Why are we talking about Happy Tree Friends when a beautiful film is playing in front of us? <laughs> but <laughs> uh, it's, was it flash animation? Uh, really gory. That was the joke. Uh, yeah. Happy, cuddly characters. Think Care Bears meets your worst nightmare, that type of thing. Basically taking this... a strand of what made shows like South Park, um, mm. sort of cutesiness married with violence, um, and just building the whole series around that, seemed like. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it was the oh my god they killed Kenny, but every one of them was that. Yeah. Uh, so you you had this, but the 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 thing about the show is it had this absolutely irritating theme tune, and every time it played, everyone laughed, and the laughter got less and less, and and then it started turning into moaning, and the moaning got louder and louder and louder <laughs> as the program went on. <laughs> Um, but I do remember there was a couple of films that stood out, and the other one was Isla Moore, which is uh, Don Hertzfeld's 1995 or earlier, perhaps, uh, short film that he made as a student. And I just remember being in pieces, uh, laughing, uh, laughing my head off at it because it was just, it, it was just hilarious. There was, there's no two ways about it, and it was so raw. And I think as we're watching the beginning of It's Such a Beautiful Day, we're kind of reminded of that kind of rawness uh, as we see the, uh, you know, the very sort of blunt pencil characters. Uh, uh, Two figures in, walking so to toward each other. Yeah. Uh, and we, we kind of, he's, a, he's an animator, he's an artist who's comfortable, <laughs> I suppose, mm-hmm. uh, is the nicest way of, of describing uh, his work. At least that's what I take from it as well. I don't think he he doesn't feel the need to compromise for anyone. And I like no, that. I would I would say I mean the animation 
it is sort of worth pointing out is good. Like he's a good animator. His sense of movement um, and comedic timing always stood out. And it oh, was, yeah. you know, I mean, it, it saves obviously on labor if all the characters are stick figures. Um, but if you made a film like, for example, Billy's Balloon, um, and you didn't have that intuitive sense of when to do, when to have a certain thing happen, the impact, when to hold on a shot, when to, you know, when you drop the the kid from a great height onto the ground again, uh, after holding him up for, you know, the perfect amount of time, um, you know, those films wouldn't be that watchable. So I think that, you know, with this film, um, which starts off on a kind of comedic note, you have this very awkward exchange between two people who kind of sort of recognize each other. And it's a nice little uh, musing on the weird shit that we say, like in the moment. And in this case, it sort of, it comes off as a gag, but then it's almost sort of setting up this ultimate premise of the film, which is this main character, Bill, who is suffering from some kind of degenerative neurological condition. And a faux pas then leads to other sort of situations, losing keys, being lost, not recognizing things, finding his surroundings increasingly uncomfortable um, and daunting. Uh, and it kind of, I think, substitutes a very sophisticated sense of comedy that Don Hertzfeld has put into his other short films with an incredibly sophisticated sense of just emotional anguish. Um mm. And incredible storytelling. Like it's, it's, and I wonder if it was always planned to be as long as, you know, the film ended up being, or if it was maybe initially just going to be this 20 minute short film, um, which then ultimately became the first chapter. But there, there must have been a point, really, maybe when he was making the second one, if that was the case, that he just mm-hmm. decided uh, it, that, that, yeah, I'm going to make three of these. This is good. I'm looking at the, the bit at the moment is the floating brains, mm-hmm. uh, and it's this sort of high concept that uh, Hertzfeld occasionally reaches in to grab. Because uh, this is the thing you, you are you're not watching the same film for longer than two or three minutes. It, mm-hmm. Even though you are listening to the same voice throughout, and it's a long time to listen to that monotone voice. He says, uh, realizing that people are listening to us on a podcast. But it's the same time to listen to it's a, it's a long time to listen to the same voice, but it's the film switches around backwards and forwards with such ease and such such a mastery uh, again timing that it it's effortless and beautiful and it works out perfectly. But the moment with the floating brains or the moment where his head's floating into space and it starts starts talking about this. Uh, high concept sci-fi uh, stuff. I I find all that stuff wonderful, and that's the stuff that always drags me back in. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm fascinated throughout the film. I want to follow Bill's journey, and I'm enjoying Bill's journey. But occasionally, I'm like, you know, tell me more. This is the, you're the most interesting film in the world. Oh, that's interesting. Tell me more. And these little morsels keep coming towards you, and some of them are absolutely captivating and that's what keeps you hanging on. And that's why a film populated by stick figures can, can last an hour. And it's, it's wonderful. Hmm. You know, it's interesting watching this again. Now something I'm kind of noticing about this first part is how amped up the narration is. And it's something that I think calms down, um, in the in the later films, but the first film, there's a real intensity to it. Um, that may be deliberate because also the, this first one is sort of pointedly darker. Um, it feels a bit more in your face. It feels a bit more intense, which I'd say is probably on point with how you know degenerative uh, mental conditions, um, memory loss, that kind of thing. I, I feel like as far as how it's documented. It, it seems on point because it's scarier in the earlier stages when you still have mm-hmm. enough of your faculties to be able to be aware of, like, oh, wait, what's going on? Something is wrong here. Why don't I recognize this? Why don't I remember this? I just peed out of my pant leg. That was unexpected. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and you know it's it's this one is him sort of like seeing not recognizing faces seeing his you know room all distorted is happening now um he's not able to process his surroundings properly he sees people and they have the faces of demons or animal heads um physical degeneration he's losing his teeth um here are the animal heads like this is a bit a bit darker than it eventually sort of gets later on yeah. where we've got the people now with their crotches in the produce aisle <laughs> surrounded by germs which by so the way is how i feel when i do my my grocery shopping now just seeing people <laughs> <laughs> getting too close yeah but again it's that switching isn't it i mean i you're watching this thing feeling for bill and then there's that tremendous callback to uh first couple of minutes where he's he's talking about the grocery store Hmm. Uh, nothing's wasted everything comes back and everything's used again yeah i think initially these films were released on dvd like as Hmm. singles and um i think it's probably the last time a filmmaker would be able to get away with doing that and uh, the full film was released on Blu-ray uh, a couple of years ago. And we have a review of the film and, by extension, the Blu-ray collection. There's a lovely uh, inscription on the back. It says, um, proudly making its first appearance on Blu-ray just in time for the format to slowly grow obsolete. Which I enjoy. <laughs> I think you introduced the, the best of the Squiggly podcast a million years ago. When we, we when we handed it out round Annecy on CD to people, <laughs> and they were like, "Oh, thanks, I'll I'll listen to it on my iPod later." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was a kind of last gasp. I think I, yeah. I think I still have one of those somewhere. The coaster. Yeah. But yeah, Don, Don uh, Hertzfeld is quite entrepreneurial, uh, or at least he has people that you know. Um, uh, has pushed him to that. I'm not sure if he's in control of all of it, but you know, for a while, maybe still you could buy his films on DVD and Blu-ray and you could also buy sort of one offs. And he made this incredible book called the end of the world, which is a kind of giant graphic novel thing with each page was like a post-it note doodle. Mm. And this film in particular really feels a lot in tone like that book, like the the scaled up, very small pencil drawings of the characters and the kind of story strands that are seemingly not connected, but then intertwine more and more as it goes. And that was a big thing with the book is it looks like each page is like its own separate little like one-off random one panel joke or, you know, sketch or whatever. And then it actually starts telling a story about the world coming to an end. And there are elements of that book that are specifically adapted in a later Don Hertzfeld film called uh, The World of Tomorrow. Mm. But that film stylistically is quite different. I mean, it's his style, but it's it's presented in a more like explicitly digital way than the book or this film Uh this 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 film still retains this kind of analog processes that he used. Yeah. Um, I think it's all like thirty five millimeter film. It has that you know very natural look. There's a lot of combinations of analog live action filmmaking processes in with the you know traditional pencil on paper animation. Um, everything is spotlit, like we're sort of seeing now. Like it's you know scenario to scenario, character to character. Um, you know, it's a bit like looking through, like, retinopathy. Like, everything has blurred black edges. Tunnel like kaleidoscope. Vision. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I love this bit, and I, I love the fact that he, even though this film was made less than a decade ago, or these films were made or presented less than a decade ago, that he's using those old techniques i think the camera that he used was from the 1940s it was one that they used to film the peanuts cartoons on and it's one of the last ones that uh that still exists and i i just love the idea that it's not done on a computer and that sounds dead snobby uh and i think the world of tomorrow is amazing and 
that being done on a Cintiq matches perfectly because of the subject and you know exactly like the the Simpsons introduction that he did. Yeah. Uh, it's set in the future, so obviously he's put his Hertzfeld twist on the future. Whereas these films being created, there's something tangible about them. It's real. It's we're looking at it through the same lens that the director is. It it's not being processed. It feels a bit um, organic, really, doesn't it? Yeah, love it. And also the the use of the music, and I think um, that's about to kick in uh, fairly soon. Certain orchestral pieces that really give a sense of, at times, deep, deep foreboding, but at other times, immense positivity. Um, there's a piece of music that I think was also used in the film O Willy uh, that either comes up at the end of this first part or the end of the second part. Um, just this wonderful, like, sort of ethereal building of, not such not a melody as such, just a kind of building of overlapping major chords just sort of ascending and ascending um mm-hmm. it creates a really really like d- tangible like oof like you're really <laughs> it really brings you in even more and he has a great i think sense for what music to use because like i say equally there are moments where the music just makes you feel sick with like anxiety and you feel mm-hmm. dreadfully sad for this poor prick um, you know, um, yeah. The, 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 the thing with the music as well, I, I, uh, I made the mistake of not doing my research and asking on stage, Mark, Mark Rolls, who's the co-director of O Willie, uh, when he was showing Magnificent Cake a couple of years ago, I asked him about the music, uh, asked him about his approach to music and thinking, cause there were certain pieces in it that I'd never heard before. Uh, in Magnificent Cake. I'm not a classical music uh, buff. I don't listen to classic FM or any of that sort of stuff. Uh, Not that I don't like it, you know. I'm not trying to be a kind of... Anyway, shut up, Steve. Uh, (laughs) um, And he said, yeah, I just just pick the music that I like and it works. And when you watch films like Magnificent Cake or It's Such a Beautiful Day and you know that the filmmakers have just... They've... It's a perfect match with the music, mm-hmm. and it's it's beautiful because there's so many overused pieces of music. There's so many overused uh, uh, scores, or people just think that they, when it comes to making a film, you can just go on uh, free sound or whatever it is at the end, pick something, and that'll do. Because sound is just you know just crap furniture for a you know just stick it in there. It doesn't really matter. But it matters so much. And when the filmmaker understands that the sound is important, it really works. And when it's used like it is used in It's a Such Beautiful Day, it's just a a joy to experience. The sound design as well, like in this, is like I would really recommend watching it with headphones or with a really, really, like, you know, well set up sound system. Because the sounds, especially the overbearing sequences where everything's getting a bit much and it's just screaming voices overlapping <laughs> or nightmare, like just the kind of buildup of distractions that all of a sudden you're just so keenly aware of when you're anxious or you're stressed out. And there are moments in this film that just absolutely like present that. It's such a, it's, it's horrible, but it's brilliant, you know? Um, <laughs> And uh, I think uh, I think something like that's sort of happening at this point in the film. Uh, we've actually moved on to chapter two, uh, the second film, uh, which is called "I'm So Proud of You" uh, originally. And this is interesting how it kind of it adds this other dimension to the story that is then later on in the third film, kind of like reversed a bit, or they sort of back out of it they him Mm. um but the initial sort of premise of this is it's childhood memories now in the first 20 minutes it's been about bill being diagnosed adapting struggling thinking he's going to die and then kind of recovering 
and they have to return the casket at great expense and inconvenience, which is a great line. Um, <laughs> and there's a, toward the end, his mother comes to take care of him, and there's a uh, scene where he thinks she's going to hurt him with some scissors, and he bats them out of her hand, and she's heartbroken because, you know, uh, obviously she wasn't going to hurt him. That presents the mother as this very kind of caring, you know, compassionate character. It's a very brief introduction. So in this part, we're now learning that the mother was probably schizophrenic or had a similar uh, neurological condition, um, something that was maybe sort of sort of suggested, I think, he finds out that uh, she's been encouraged to not have children. But also it's interwoven with these childhood memories and memories, impossible memories he seems to have of other family members. Yes. Um, and so it's it's kind of interesting how, whether maybe in this film those were actually meant to be stories about things that had really sort of happened rather than his his thoughts or his memories. And then it was kind of decided later on that that was a sort of part of his, like, you know, consciousness or his mind, like his mechanism for coping with his diagnosis. But in the meantime, you get these wonderful little, almost Adam Elliot-y anecdotal tales of relatives of his and quirky lives they lead. Um, and then, like, the horrible, horrible, like, grandmother um, with the cat heads. I'm not sure if that happened already. Um, no, no, it's not happened yet. We're, we're oh, this, this bit long with bit. the leaf blower <laughs> is great. Yeah. Um, well, it's, is it, how? Why is it great, Ben? <laughs> it? So it's, uh, I, I love things. I love scenes that just kind of gr- grind everything to a halt and sort of force yeah. an intermission on the audience. And this, I wouldn't say that there is much in this film that's like Lynchian, and I, I always cringe a bit when I use that term because it's never used right. Um, but there was something very David Lynchy about this moment in that, um, in the new series he did in particular, in every episode there would be like a solid minute or two minutes or three minutes where nothing was happening. And it drove people absolutely crazy. It would just be like, you'd just be watching a guy sweeping a floor for five minutes or watching a guy painting a shovel for five minutes or, um, or there's another film, actually, I forget who directed it. It was called Ghost Story. You're just watching a woman eating a cake or a pie for a good five or six minutes straight. It's just one shot. And it's I like it because I know it's pissing people off <laughs> on one level. But I also like a fil- giving a film a bit of breathing room. Um, other those, shows those are not listening. To do. Those not listening. It's still going on. The scene is still yeah, he's, going he's on. He's still. It's just a guy. He's at the bus stop, and there's this guy blowing leaves, and he's been doing it for about two minutes now, with music <laughs> playing. Um, and I, you know, it's like my favorite like scene in The Simpsons for years and years and years was Sideshow Bob stepping on rakes, <laughs> and that I don't think was a deliberately belabored scene. It just they they extended it out of necessity and it became this ludicrous scene where it's just looping this guy mm. stepping on rakes for at least two minutes. Um, anyway, we're back into the film now. The leaf blowing has uh, has wrapped up. This bit is my favourite bit. Yeah. It's the evil grandmother now. Uh, and <laughs> she's she's pretty <laughs> rotten, isn't she? <laughs> There's some really the na- <laughs> nice bits of animation here and the bit with the cat's heads where uh, and there's a question about them being fresh or quality. <laughs> she rubs them across her skin. Rubbing it on her scalp. <laughs> now, for as simple less- as his his design style is, the cat heads are horrific. <laughs> like, that, that's a really... I wonder if this is like a sort of reference to Sybil. Mm. Which, uh, you know, with did you see that? It's an old, old film about um, a, a girl with disassociative identity disorder, and she had at one point, I think, cut off the head of a cat and she was haunted by dreams of this cat head. It's ringing a um, tiny bell. And this is kind of like, it gets to a point where it's almost like, it's it's sort of funny, but it's also like gruesome. Like just this like grandmother, like, la, 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 like rubbing cat heads on her own head for whatever <laughs> value that brings. Um, I think when the, uh, is this the uncle now? The, yeah, the, this, these bits are just 
amazing. This is mm. very. This is where you get into the Adam Elliott territory, or that you know, obviously he's not copying, but that type of. Uh, you're talking about uh, grandpa and the uncle with the f- furry moles and all that sort of stuff. Um, the, it's like a uh, film within a film. Yeah, yeah, and you get lost in it, and that's what's so good about you know the, the bit with the train. It, it it's sublime and mm. hilarious and. Again, he's he's off a leash and he's just doing what he wants for a couple of minutes. Fantastic. Yeah. So yeah, they um. So I think it's a, this one started with the story of his brother, right? And he had uh, the the brother yes, at the his, beach, and he goes his brother off. Brother with the with the arms, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I do think that's something. It's, I think with the story being progressed in installments the way it is um with each film there are these little elements that seem to kind of change our perception of the one that came before and you know it does hold together as one film absolutely um but you can i think sort of tell that there were slightly different story approaches with each one um so i'm just i keep getting distracted by all the optical (laughs) stuff that's happening it really is lovely yeah, and that's a great gag. The you know she she died of yellow fever, and then she was on fire, and then all of a sudden, yeah, yeah uh, it's just it's superb. Mm. It's and getting it's a bit darker it. again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now another film that doesn't seem to get as much of as much love as Rejected or Billy's Balloon, but it's probably my my favorite. It's called Wisdom Teeth. Yes, and that's another one that this film reminds me of. Innocent, like I think, because Wisdom Teeth, I think, experimented with some of the optical stuff as well, um, mm. and the overlaying um, that the meaning of life did too. But it was in a much more sort of again specifically comedic way, and uh, it's just a, <laughs> there's not really a lot of meat to it. It's about a guy who's had um, his wisdom teeth pulled, and his friend is pulling his stitches. And or this one unending stitch that goes on forever, and it's so like it's stomach churning, but it's it's hysterical. And the again the sort of comedic timing of it, mm. a lot of nothing happens, and it's when something comes along to disrupt the nothing is always to the microsecond perfectly timed. And if it's just like the guy sort of like waving his hand or like moving his fingers a little bit. It's kind of hard to explain <laughs> why it's so good, but but try and seek it out. Um, and then toward the end, he starts like hallucinating. <laughs> He's like, I yeah. see visions of beasts and it's little like plastic yeah. dinosaurs <laughs> being it's wiggled Swedish. about. I see pre- prehistoric beasts. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, uh, I, I think I read the uh, description of that on uh, Don's uh, YouTube channel. And it says something like, a film I made when I should have been doing other stuff. And I think therein lies something that speaks to the purity of independent filmmaking. If he did, in fact, make that when he was doing his own stuff, when he should have been doing other stuff, like commercial stuff or whatever, that will explain why it's just just great fun. It's very um, Monty Python-y with the kind of Swedish... Uh, you know, chatting to one another, all that sort of stuff. Like the Holy Grail at the beginning with um, when the credits are coming up and it's done in, and the cat keeps speaking, uh, talking about, um, uh, oh my God, I forgot the beginning of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. My geek credentials have uh, disappeared out the window. Um, come on, Ben, help me out. Have you seen Monty I, Python I and the Holy Grail? I just remember the the coconuts. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, talking about basically talking about you know come to come to Norway, beautiful fjords, all that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, it's very Monty Pythony, uh, and uh, this is a problem we're not editing. It's just a ramble now. But uh, it's okay. It's, go with what works. <laughs> it feels Wisdom Tea feels like a film that's been made for nobody else but Don Hertzfeld, and because of that, it's honest, and because of that, we love it, and. That is pretty damn beautiful, and I think because of that, he might have found a lot of the uh, the optical effects and had more fun with it, and then it informs bigger projects such as the one we're watching now. 
Mm. So it, it really pays off, doesn't it, to just go away and do your own thing. Now, you definitely uh, see an evolution to the work and how work that succeeds, stuff that came before, draws on you know, ideas that were in, sort of initially developed that just kind of fully fleshed out in later films, uh, which I think a lot of filmmakers do. But, you know, with, with Don Herzog, you can kind of identify quite specific strands. Like I think I mentioned with um, the graphic novel, uh, certain sequences and that being kind of repurposed a bit for uh, World of Tomorrow. Um, but then in turn, I think that there are sort of elements of this, the kind of asides and the kind of like little telling a very, very like impactful story with as little time and words as possible word economy um you know being able to make something really poignant out of a post-it note um you know that one frame very very small scale i think that's something that this film probably strengthened that muscle a bit yeah um because so much of it is just like little things that are happening to him in his house uh little interactions he has with people um it's like a kind of it's not just a, a series of vignettes or skits that are strung together, but those are, those little elements really humanize him and really uh, they're very appealing. Like actually, the the sort of one two punch right at the beginning, where it's the two guys walking toward each other and they kind of are just making noises at each other, and he's like he says "fair" or something. Hmm. Um, then he's in the grocery store and the woman asks how he's doing and he says, I'm fine, how are you? And she doesn't reply. It's like, Bill felt used. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's a, those are the lovely sort of moments um, that are just kind of very kind of densely packed um, and sort of relatable, I suppose. Um, mm. Yeah. Another high so, concept bit here, the uh, the idea of cells dying and just continuing to be uh, different people. I think this is the part where he he sees um, uh, finds the bit where his mother he says his mother shouldn't have kids. Mm. Here we yeah, go. yeah. Beneath the album was a folder of his mother's medical records. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the effort that's gone into this for a film about stick figures to be creating to wander around graveyards and film all that sort of stuff and to create false records and film them and just pick the right colors yeah amazing mm. those heads coming off <laughs> so there's another got... nice lingering moment here yeah this yeah maybe maybe going back to Billy's balloon a little bit as well. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> uh, nice little well callback, but um, yeah, completely different scenario. Uh, you were going to say something. I was. Uh, have you have you got uh, Understanding Comics by Scott McCloud? Uh, I do. Yes, isn't it one of the best books going? Uh, I think it's great. It was very helpful when I was doing uh, Throat, because mm. um, I had no real comic anything, <laughs> you know, so actually uh, having any kind of reference stuff was, um, you know, very, very useful. But uh, yeah. I remember uh, uh, our pal Philippe Vaucher over in Montreal, um, I think he either lent it to me and I never gave it back to him or he gave it to me, <laughs> um, but I have it still. Yeah, uh, yeah. If great, you're listening, Philippe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, throat, by the way, is your uh, graphic novel. So if people heard you saying you were doing Throat, uh, don't think that it's a euphemism or a name for a hip new drug or anything like that. Um, no, yeah, I, <laughs> I absolutely adore it. And I, I do um, uh, understanding comics. And I do refer to it a lot because there's parts of that where it, it explains. I think it explains what we're watching now and that's that ability for us to apply ourselves to the film and for us to understand uh, that through something as simple as a circle with two dots, we understand that it's a face, but we understand not just that it's a face, that it could be our face. And because of that, we attach so much emotion 
to these very innocent stick figures. Yeah. And there's something magical about that. If we were watching a live action character, no matter how much CGI you wanted to throw at it, if you wanted to do the the floating head, if you wanted to do um, anything uh, that you're seeing on screen ahead of you, but you stick any actor in place of Bill and all of a sudden you're just watching the actor. And I think that's one of the biggest and most dramatic differences between animation. One of the reasons I love animation more than uh, live action, although I do like live action, uh, is that power that animation has over you. And it's a filmmaker like Don Hertzfeld that really exploits that power. Well, if we're lucky, maybe someone in uh, 20 years will do a live action remake of this film. Of course, using all CG animation, but, you know, photorealistic CG animation. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. When all Don's stuff gets bought and put on Disney+, and they make the inevitable live-action It's Such a Beautiful Day. I uh, think that's something that, um, you know, is bearing in mind doing more of these episodes, um, I think that searching out films that are perhaps a little... Um, more unique in their approach or perhaps a bit more obscure or used, you know, very bizarre approaches to their filmmaking, uh, I think is, you know, the kind of stuff that we're probably going to gravitate toward a bit more. Like, I think Mm -hmm. it's probably unlikely that we're going to do the new Lion King. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, never say never. Um, If you can tolerate two hours of me swearing, that's that's when you do the new Lion King. Um, maybe people want that. I don't. Please don't put me through it. We're not doing it. I feel like there's a, there's probably enough people doing that. Um, yes. And enough people who are just kind of arbitrarily just always enthusiastic about every film that comes out, uh, if it's by a certain studio. But no, I think that there's, like you say, I think what I, I think what we both kind of really get from animation is when it takes you to a place that live action filmmaking just couldn't like fundamentally um which you know obviously this film is a prime example of there are plenty of others that are just like okay there will obviously this anomalisa wouldn't work in live action it 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 goes mm. against what the premise is you know mm. um someone was musing the other day about like how they felt like the red turtle could have just been uh done in live action and I no. was really annoyed, <laughs> but yeah. I kind of, I, in a sense, you could, but there's something about the the beauty of the art of animation that really adds to that film, for example, um, that separates it from, you know, your, your average, like a, a castaway type film. Yeah. Um, you know, you could have him, you know, with a big beached CG turtle, and I just don't think it would be as special an experience. Yeah. Um, and yeah, certainly, I mean, what I think the third film, which I think is about to start, or rather the, the third chapter of the film, um, what we start to explore in this last act is something that really, I think, draws upon that concept of animation being a crucial aspect is that, and we have like scenes that are going to be coming up where you have live action footage with animation that matches up to it, character animation. So people walking in the street and his brain or his POV is sort of substituting the live action people with the stick figures, mm. which in, in a very indirect way sort of implies that seeing the world in this way as drawn stick figures might actually be how this man, as he's losing it, is starting to process his surroundings. Certainly the interchangeability of faces you know being these very simple collections of shapes you know just two dots and a line for the mouth everyone sort of looking the same not being able to rect you know differentiate between uh each person no longer recognizing his ex-girlfriend i think so this part of the film i think brings that into the the mix a bit more hmm I mean, maybe I'm just because I that I remember when I saw this film first before the others. I remember that being my kind of takeaway was like, oh, he's kind of using his style as a way to kind of communicate, um, you know, this problematic 
memory issues that this guy is having. Um, no, you totally see it. Uh, it's like we we are viewers of Bill for the first 20 minutes, and then we take a trip inside his head. And then when we return, we're seeing the damage, perhaps, yeah. if that's too blunt a way of putting it. I think um, also though, the elements, I think, of the dark humor that I really, really sort of appreciate that are brought into the th- the guy next to him in the hospital mm. who's been <laughs> paralyzed and he can press buttons with phrases and the only one he presses is I am in pain. Just yeah. repeatedly. And it's, it's horrible, but it's a very kind of like, it's a sort of Todd Salonesy almost like really bleak, but quite funny. Like, you know, and it's a recurring thing. It sort of rears its head a couple of other times. Um, I like the fact that it's got seven phrases, and that's all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's something about that. Yeah, his room, his roommate's name is Matthew. Here it is, uh, and there he is, earnestly pressing pressing the button. <laughs> it's five different electronic sentences. And he presses, "I am in pain." Oh, <laughs> oh, Don. <laughs> and again, this beautiful playing with light on. You know, against really simple drawings. Yeah. Gorgeous, gorgeous work. But yeah, so this film, beginning with him in hospital, because at the end of the second part, he, you know, things are looking up. Again, he seems to be kind of on an upswing. And then he, I guess, has a stroke or a seizure. It's, it's again, beautifully portrayed through this very, very intense cluster of on-screen visuals, this kind of electro, like, synapses just sparking violently in his head, and he collapses. Um, so now this film begins with him in hospital. And this, I think, was some one of the reasons why this film worked as a standalone film, is that you don't really need much of a narrative before that. You're brought up to speed really quickly, um, yeah. watching this film in its own right. Um, and I think, was this... Yeah, the third film was always called It's Such a Beautiful Day. Um, but yeah, so initially it was just the last 20 minutes of this uh, hour-long film. And at the time, it wasn't as in vogue, I think, to make short animated films about, you know, memory loss. And sort of, I think in the years since, it's become one of those subjects that like people just can't <laughs> keep their hands off. Yeah. Like every year, there's a crop of just films about how sad, and it is. It's dreadfully sad. It's it's you know one of the most sort of awful things to witness or go through. But again, because of that, then I think people consider it a kind of criticism-proof subject for a film. Hmm. So some of them are done a bit glibly, uh, others are done beautifully. But I do remember at the time it not being nearly as done. And yeah. finding it, you know, especially impactful uh, when I saw the film at the festival. Um, you know, I mean, so, and, you know, I don't think necessarily people are ripping off it as a, as a subject since this film came out. Um, you know, there are plenty of films that are so, so different tonally, uh, but kind of go to the same, like Louise on Hiver or Lost Property or The Head Vanishes. Uh, memorable was absolutely gorgeous. Uh, Cartoon Saloon did one recently. What was that uh, called? Afternoon. So, uh, yeah, afternoon. late afternoon. Um, you know, I, I think when people put their own directorial stamp on it and they have sort of their own approaches to it, um, you know, it, it's you know it's perfectly workable as a subject for a film. But yeah, I do remember yeah. it just not being just sort of like overplayed as much. Because um, those yeah. films that I mentioned, they stand out for being not like just kind of um, how to be diplomatic. Basically, a lot Please of student show. films Please just show. kind of. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, go on. Have a, have a go at student films. That's fine. <laughs> students, students could be listening. Students could be listening, thinking, "I'm going to make a film that's really profound, and it's about people that lose their memory." And I have no experience about this whatsoever. And yeah, that's, th- that's the trouble. They don't realize that it, it isn't something to be just sort of glib about and trot out a film about. Like mm. these are, you know, 
authenticity is very, very important when it comes to that sort of subject matter. Um, and what's so beautiful about Late Afternoon as well, just to go back to some of those films, I mean, all yeah. those films that you mentioned, you can pick something about those films that is covering the same thing. It's covering dementia or a form of dementia, but it's covering something completely different to what this film we're currently watching covers. Late Afternoon is about a breakthrough. Yes, we know that the, that the mother character in the film is... Uh, she's losing her faculties and it's desperately sad but it's about the breakthrough when she realizes who the other person in the room is and that is beautiful that's not in this film i don't think and it's not in many of the other films where you see memorable the finale of memorable is about acceptance for mm-hmm. both both the characters and you don't really get much acceptance in this. You get a payoff, but it's a kind of we'll go into it when we get to it. Um, yeah. But yeah, you have to do something unique when you're making any film, really. But you can't just say be sad. This this is the sad film. It's about sad. <laughs> you can't you can't do that. Something that we just kind of that just went past in the film was uh, like a montage of scenes from the second chapter Mm. and the narration talking about how when you know we're faced with a really really daunting diagnosis part of the processing um is the invention of fabricated memories and i think that was what i was thinking of when i was thinking of things in the second part being called into question like did any of this really happen um you know the stories about the relatives um Probably the mother's diagnosis was real, but were the, the memories of his brother necessarily real or the grandmother, you know? Um, and that's kind of, you know, I thought that was a, a nice kind of consideration, I suppose, that adds value to this film when you have seen the other parts, sort of calling back to those um, and maybe sort of calling into question what it is we think we have seen or what we think we know about this guy. But also from a, a filmmaking standpoint, as watching this as a feature, if you are watching the whole thing for the first time, you've already laughed at those moments. You've already invested in those moments. You've already had emotions about those moments. And then for them to be called into their existence, called into question, even though it's animation and it's not real anyway, it still smarts a bit. It's, it's beautiful. Yeah. I need to pick a different word than beautiful. So this is a sequence we're, we're sort of arriving at, which is like one of the kind of last stages before things wrap up. And watching this again not that long ago, I hadn't realized at the time, I think this really, really influenced a film of mine. Um, this is him walking around the block. And he just did a lovely little thing with his face. He does the uh, Charles Schultz, like, eyes looking to the side thing. <laughs> I quite like that. Anyway, he's walking, he's walking around the block, taking in, you know, going for a stroll. Then he goes back inside and then he walks around the block again because he's immediately forgotten. He just did it. And it plays out in the, again, a bit like with the leaf blower. Um, he's, he's stuck in a holding pattern um, because, you know, he's like a goldfish at this point. He just isn't quite able to and he's doing he's seeing the exact same things on the street um he's going the exact same route he's just literally going in a loop um and uh yeah there was a film i did that involved a guy kind of uh, in a bit of a loop for a good two minutes and i didn't think i was uh referring to <laughs> don hertzfeld at the time but maybe this kind of had a bit of a role to play in that hmm. which film uh, clean and throw. Oh yes. Of course, for the whole like two first two minutes, it's the same thing happening over and over. And then when it's finally disrupted, people were always so relieved that mm-hmm. uh, they'd laugh at anything else that happened in the film. Mm. I um, thought you were just doing classic rule of three with that. Uh, well, no, because a rule of three would be good, but I do it four times, and you can tell by the fourth time people are really pissed off. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, 
So yeah, he's um You invented the rule of four. <laughs> well <done>. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, he's this, in his this house. Is tragic. Yeah. And he's just kind of and this is the fear, I think, because he's in I guess he's been sent home to be taken care of, but no one is taking care of him. Hmm. And he's sort of fending for himself. Uh, there's a woman in my building that's, I think, you know, in this kind of state. Like, I'll occasionally see her. I have no idea what her deal is. Like, if she owns rents, occasionally there's someone who checks in on her, which is, you know, encouraging. But occasionally I'll have exchanges with her as I'm leaving. Um, she'll always ask me if it's nine in the morning. Um or sometimes if she's agitated, she'll tell a distressing story about a neighbor that had done something horrible, which maybe happened 10 years ago, but she's told that same story several times over the last seven years that I've seen her as though it just happened. Um, uh, yeah. So this is where the part- somebody about that, Ben. <laughs> maybe, this is, maybe this is one where, we, where I give you a couple of numbers to ring after the podcast. <laughs> well, you know, the, the, the building knows. You yeah, good, good. <laughs> uh, like I say, people do check on her. Like I, yeah. I'm, you know. Uh, but it's this is where I think the film sort of hits home, especially. Mm. This is, I think, the fear we kind of have for you know people in our lives um, being able to fend for themselves. Um, yeah. You never know. She might just be like me. She might just have like two stories. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe she's doing a podcast right now, talking about the weirdo <laughs> who comes down and tells her the time. So we'll get some lovely effects here. Yeah. And that bit comes back later on, doesn't it? With the stars going out. I suppose we could talk a little bit about the world of tomorrow as well. Because he's mm-hmm. done... Um, I think he's done two of those, um, two uh, films in, with that sort of story. I'm not sure if he, his plan was to do three again, like with this, and eventually release it as a feature. Um, but what was your kind of impression of that when you first saw it? Because it was quite a, we took, you mentioned before, it is a bit of a departure, stylistically. I loved it. I loved it for the story, because it's sci-fi, and I'm not kind of... I, I I love what I'm watching now. I love this this film. It's absolutely gorgeous. I love the way that it plays with the sort of like all of his films. It's sort of a cerebral adventure, whether or not it's comedic or if it's about the soul, which I suspect this film's about. But World of Tomorrow was absolutely about the soul and about the the person. Uh, when you're if you watch too much sci-fi crap like I do, then you'll eventually question things such as, you know, if you teleport, is that just like being 3D printed? And if you've just been 3D printed, then you've just been vaporized. And if you're that, who's that person at the other side? Is that you? Is it still the same essence? Is it still the same person? And I loved it because the film got into all that. And it also got into the nature of... of the way that you know you're only here once and make make the bloody most of it. That that's that was I got that overwhelming feeling from it, which is what you get from it's such a beautiful day as well. Um, the film's about stick figures, but they make you think about life. It's absolutely balmy, but I love it. Um, stylistically, uh, it fit. I think it fit. Uh, I think it worked, uh, and I think it was. It was completely different to It's Such a Beautiful Day, because if we'd have seen the same style being used, I think he he possibly feels that he's spent it on this film, the uh, the tangible, uh, in-camera captured film. Whereas when he made uh, World of Tomorrow, it had to be sterile, because it's about a bleak, sterile future. That's what I took mm-hmm. from it anyway. Yeah, I think my main takeaway was if you clone yourself, your clone is going to turn out to be a bit of a dick. (laughs) Yeah. I I just loved how, like, absolutely dispassionate the cloned version of the woman was. Mm. And how, you know, (laughs) what a recklessly irresponsible thing it would be 
to do to your past self (laughs) to like bring them into the future for no particular reason and at great risk to their life when they're a little girl um the little girl was adorable as well just the the audio clips that he harvested from yeah whatever whatever sort of uh, play date it was and the way that it just stitched into the film beautifully for her to say certain things and for the reaction of this blunt future clone um, mm. towards Emily Prime, I think the uh, the original uh, character is called. It's just it's just masterful. Again, a story that's been might have been told before. You know, the idea of being a clone has been tackled many times before. However, uh, Don Hertzfeld takes a completely new twist on it. Mm. Back to back to this film, this scene that's playing at the moment is again just really quite something. Um, mm. So he is at this point he's travelled kind of aimlessly and yet somehow been able to find his way to an old man who's probably his father uh, at a nursing home. And I think he has just enough cognizance to, you know, recognize locations and follow cues. Um, And they have this beautiful exchange. Um, uh, And yeah, he sort of tells the father he's forgiven. He has no idea why he's even saying it. Um, Yeah. And nor does the old man seem to know, but they're both moved by it somehow. Mm. Um, a force, a force of humanity brings them together. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's beautiful. At this point, the live action elements have started to outweigh the animation elements. Now they're stick figures in a live action world. Um, and sometimes, again, it's like live action people that then, like you see the old man being wheeled in, it's live action and then when they're face-to-face, it's the two stick figures. Um, and so now it's Bill lying in the grass um, with this very sort of soft focus haze over everything. And um, and then we get this odd little moment with the narration right here where the narrator is sort of appealing for Bill to get the fuck up. You know, his story isn't over yet. Yeah. Um, and it's, an, it's a quite hard to pin down what the angle is with that. Like, has the narrator been him on some level? Is the narrator some observer? Is the narrator just meant to be Don Hertzfeld, who doesn't want his time with this character over yet? Perhaps? No, I want to make some more film with this guy. Um, So now he embarks on this last quest, a sort of um, epic odyssey, uh, metaphysical journey through time and space and uh, interdimensionality, and he will not only not die, he will live forever in every conceivable way. Um, whether Which is that- ridiculous. Which is absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> and that's exactly, you know, it's like, okay, you want this ending, do you? You want this fantastic ending. I think the narrator is is working on behalf of the audience, but then the director, Don Hertzfeld, goes, you want this, do you? Here you go. <laughs> and And puts the character that we've, you know, grown to love over the last 50-odd minutes in the most unimaginably surreal, even, you know, existing forever is just as painful as as dying young, in a way. It really plays on a completely different concept. It turns it on its head and takes the audience through this through another journey um yeah it's it's yeah wonderful brilliant amazing other words it could perhaps also be representative of the passage from life to death and how maybe in that last moment you become sort of one with everything in a way that Mm. sort of transcends time and space and knowledge as we know it and that sort of thing um you have no idea if that was remotely at play, but you know there are certain Taoist principles and things like that that uh, it evokes. I do like the idea of the director just going, "Oh, you want this, dear? Here you go." It's like the sort of Homer Simpson sat down eating donuts. Uh, oh, you like donuts, dear? Have all the donuts. It's this type of 
Oh, you like you want a happy ending, dear? Here's all the happy, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then it just gets more and more ridiculous. His scenario is just, yeah, never ending. And we're running out of film, Ben. This is the thing. We're yeah. running out of film and podcast. It's true. The earth is being swallowed beneath his feet. Mm. And it all goes out in a blaze of glory. And uh, he outlives the sun, Steve. The My sun. God. <laughs> <laughs> what a wacky imagination Don Hertzfeld has. This also reminds me a little bit of some of the existential musings of Mark Twain. Um, mm. He would go to some pretty, you know, dark philosophical places um, about what exactly we are in the universe. Um, but yeah, now I remember being quite shook again at the end of this, even having not seen, you know, the other two films um, like this uh, works very well as an ending to the hour. Uh, but it worked very well as an ending to the 20 minutes as well. Yeah, it is. It is sublime. Uh, and that's it. The, we got the credits now, Ben. So Indeed. Uh, this podcast is is wrapping up. If you've enjoyed this, why not let us know about it on Twitter? Let us know about it on Facebook. Uh, send us any suggestions for films that you want us to watch. Like we said earlier on, we're probably not going to be... Uh, doing the more mainstream ones, but is there a sort of obscure one? Have you seen something on uh, Instagram, on Netflix, or or, uh, Amazon, or something like that, or YouTube? Let us know, uh, at Squiggly on Twitter, um, or squiggly.com. I'm Mr. Underscore S. Underscore Henderson on Twitter. Ben? I'm at Ben L. Mitchell on Twitter. Oh, yes. Fantastic. And I think we've got seconds left. I hope this has worked, and I'd like to do more of these, Ben. Cool. Okay, let's uh, let's do that again, and this time I will press record. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> <laughs> what a way to end.